Well, thank you for having me out. It's really an honor to be with you here and to be thinking through a very important topic. So uh, what I'm going to do is just kind of introduce this framework that, uh, that I'm distilling and then give a specific application to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. And I'll be upfront. I hope that you will actually engage with this material because there's a lot in, in terms of practical political advocacy, writing to your congressperson, or whatever it is that occurs to you to do because this is a, a very pressing issue. Perhaps, as Michelle Alexander says, it is the civil rights issue of our time. So, without further ado, let me step back though and kind of give you a, a high-level view that hopefully is personally engaging. I want to introduce you to my kids. Now these pictures were taken 13 years ago or so. So uh, on the upper left is my daughter Zoe when she was first born. And below that picture is my son John. John is two years older than her. And you know he was really excited for his little sister to be born. He was so excited that he picked up and acorn, that acorn that you see there uh, on his way to meet her for the first time. So Zoe was born and then, the, you know, uh, John was at home. I came back and, and, and picked him up and we drove over to the hospital and John had been really excited. And, and to be honest, I had actually been nervous because we had just potty trained him and we were wondering, is he going to regress? Is he going to start, you know, like wetting his bed? Is he going to call for attention, be the jealous sibling? All of that stuff, right? So if any of you are young parents, you probably, you know what this feels like. So <clears throat> it was amazing to me that uh, when on the way over, right outside the hospital, John stopped and he picked up an acorn and he held it up to me and he said, for Zoe? And I was, yeah, that's how I felt. And, <clears throat> and also it was amazing that he was working on saying two-syllable words and Zoe was the first two-syllable word that he ever said really smoothly. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> you know, so, <clears throat> and, and sure enough, he, you know, he wanted to give this to her. He, he wanted to play with her. When she came home, he would... He, the first thing he would do is wake up, stand up in his crib, and call out, like, Zoe, where's Zoe? Where's Zoe? So this is them in the middle, like they're starting to play in their crib, in, her, in his crib. And, um, you know, what was really touching, of course, is that, uh, for, you know, for those nine months that we knew that Zoe was on her way, we were wondering, is John going to welcome her with the same kind of love that Ming and I as, as their parents have? Is he going to show and share in and participate in our love for Zoe? Is he gonna welcome her into our family in the same way that we're welcoming her into our family? And, and so it was amazing and touching that he did. Uh, we had a vision for what kind of relationships we would have. Does that make sense? That is at the core of what restorative justice is. A vision of what relationship is, what healthy relationships are and what they could be and what we would need to do whenever something breaks down. And then just to say that the last picture is them many years uh, later, 
this was probably a couple years ago where they were learning to play a piano duet together because we are Asian and <laughs> we do play piano. It is, it is our vision for them to do that. But <clears throat> in all seriousness, I, I do think that this is an idea or a framework for justice that we really need to reinvigorate in Christian communities. Because does God have a vision for relationship, for the kinds of relationships that we have? Absolutely, as our creator, as our heavenly father, as our redeemer, he has a vision for all kinds of relationship. They were in his mind and in his heart, and when we came along, he calls us to take our place in them. And so, whatever they are, we see them outlined in Scripture in all kinds of places. Marriage, first and foremost, in Scripture, at least chronologically. It's not that marriage is the most important, but friendship also. Friendship will last into eternity, marriage will not. That's fascinating. I think we really need to think through that. What does that mean? That, mer that friendship relationships will last into eternity. And God does, in fact, call us to be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper. What are, what are healthy family relationships? What are healthy economic relationships where wealth and resources are part of what's being negotiated? And what about power? How do we share power in decision-making, whenever someone is, let's say, a landlord and there's a tenant, like what kind of relationship is that? And how does God care about that relationship? What's his vision for relationships involving differential power? And what about historic injustice? How do we right wrongs? How do we contribute to the healing of the brokenness in the world? Now, this gets us into uh, four types of justice. I think these are four pretty intuitive uh, aspects of justice that we always talk about, but we don't know how to order. And I think all of them are important. So I'll just say that up front. All of them are important, but not in the same way. And this is where I think political conversation in the U.S. has broken down is that we do not know how to organize these four types of justice. What are they? Number one, our merits or meritocratic justice. That is a form of justice where you get what you work for or what you earn. Like let's say that you were studying for a test and if you, you did well objectively, but if your teacher, professor does not give you a good grade because of favoritism or something like that, I think all of us would cry out, that's unjust. There's something wrong. So that is meritocratic. The flip side would be retributive. That's just a way of saying, well, if you break the law or you do something wrong, then there is some kind of consequence that you're being, then you would be asked to undertake. So that is a form of justice. I don't think anyone would deny that. The second form of justice is need-based. Need-based distributive justice. So this is more like your classic human rights paradigm where the issue is, what do you and I need as human beings? Clean air, food, water. That's probably agreed upon widely. 
Public education, if you're going to have a functioning democracy, that's pretty vital. Health care, uh, we're in that debate now. But, so whatever we put into that bucket, the bucket itself is need-based distributive justice. And I think most people would say, yes, that is a form of justice, and we need to pay attention to that. Another form of justice or principle is libertarian justice, and that is when you start with yourself as an individual and you consider what it means to be free and to have responsibility. So if you're, let's say that you're in your 20s or 30s and your parents say to you that you should do this career and marry that person, you'd probably have a lot to say in response. <laughs> but one of them might be, that's not just. Like, really, you wanna take that much control or responsibility over my life? There's something unjust about that at this stage of life and in our relationship. See, because there is something about your individuality that is important, and that's that is what libertarian justice is trying to uh, get a handle on. And then the last one is restorative justice. It's what is the vision of relationship here? We do not start with the individual, we start with relationship. So why am I not free to sell my passport on the open market? I have a U.S. passport. How, why is it that you can stop me from doing it? That, isn't that a violation of my individual choice? Aha. Yes, it is. And that is because we recognize and believe that there is something called citizenship. And we believe that there are obligations of being a citizen one to another where I care about security where I care about having some kind of common culture that makes jury by your peers possible, where linguistic, cultural, and legal history is shared, and that's important. Otherwise, how would this all work? So that actually is a form of restorative justice. Does this make sense? All, I think all of us would agree that all four of these principles are important, that we hold them, but we don't know what to do when we, they come into conflict with each other. And so Republicans typically would organize them this way. Our libertarian justice is first, and then meritocratic justice comes next. I think that's a decent description of where the Republican Party is at. You know, so Ron Paul and his son Rand Paul, they're the libertarian side. They really focus on the libertarians. But, and then, you know, it's kind of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You shouldn't be dependent on government and things like that. Democrats tend to say something like this. On the moral issues, like family or who we love, Libertarian justice is first, and then second is distributive justice. We all should have some really well-defined, need-based things provided for us, including perhaps a level playing field. And then third is meritocratic retributive justice, because everyone believes, look, you've got you've to work hard, 
And if you break the law, something should happen to you. But what happens when these ideas come into conflict? So the, these pictures, by the way, are pictures that I put up at Harvard Law School and I used as kind of a freestanding display and a conversation starter. And I asked, well, depending on where you stand, why should your definition of justice prevail? Is there anything that tells you how to organize these four principles of justice? And they, by and large, admitted that we don't know. This is the problem of what's called jurisprudence, the philosophy of law. And so many of them said, I have a philosophical foundation that tells me what to do. And I said, can you explain that to me? Because I'm not aware of one. And they totally fumbled. <laughs> it was really fun. It was fun to watch people squirm. But that is, that is the question. What is your foundation for organizing it? You might want to think about that just in the next few seconds. Like, yeah, so affirmative action, for instance, is a tension between the first two kinds of justice, isn't it? Do you treat people totally meritocratically, just individually, or do you take into account hardships that they faced that other people didn't, and so weight their merits or their achievements according to how the hand that they were dealt socioeconomically? and especially as it relates to being black or brown. That's more need-based distributive, isn't it? Do we know exactly how to do that? From a secular perspective, I don't think we do. Or take the issue of gun control. That's basically boiling it down to a tension between libertarian justice and restorative justice. Libertarians would say, look, the Second Amendment is there. Don't I have an individual right to conceal carry? As long as I'm law-abiding. Do I have to tell, like, what, why, why is it that you can interfere with my right to carry a gun and defend myself? Because, look, the police don't always take care of us. That's what the Black Panther said in the 70s in Oakland, didn't they? And then there's a restorative justice question, there, or there's a relational question about that. What kind of relationships or society do we want to build and nurture here? So if you were applying for an apartment you know, somewhere in a 100-unit apartment complex, would it matter to you if every single apartment complex had a young family with kids and a gun? Probably would, considering that toddlers kill more people than Muslim terrorists in this country every year. So what kind of relationships do we want with one another? And once you break it down to those Core principles, I don't think there is anything in secular thought that tells you how to organize these principles. And that's why I think politically the U.S. is at a stalemate, at an impasse. There is no politeness that can solve this question. Democrats and Republicans cannot come to an answer. So you really have to think if this is what's going on, there is no justice, only power for seculars. That's actually a rewording of a quote from Harry Potter book one. You know, I'm a Harry Potter fan, so 
That's where Quirrell tells Harry Potter, there is no good and evil, Harry. There is only power, and those too weak to use it. Well, if that's true, then there is no thing called justice either. There is only power. And the reality is that you want power in order to impose your view of these four principles and how they should be organized. Now, if that is what you are doing, when you go about social justice work, eventually that will erode your soul. If, that's, if what you are doing is as arbitrary as what someone else is doing, if there's no deeper truth to what you're doing in social justice and political advocacy, that will erode your soul, and that will affect your ability to influence people, to woo people to the, the causes that you care about. And they, they, they may be important, but what are you gonna do when it comes down to these four principles? So I wanna put forward the argument that biblically there is an order. There God has an order to these four principles. The first is restorative. This is the biggest framework. It is the one that catches all the others. And we see it in many, many places. Uh, I think intuitively you understand it if you understand parenthood or if you resonated with the story that I told from the beginning of you know, my wife and I hoping that John would share in the vision of relationship that we had for our family. But if you want explicit scripture references, just think about all the passages about forgiveness and reconciliation. Why is it that Jesus can call us into forgiveness and reconciliation? Why is it that if I hurt you, that Jesus as a third person apparently can come along and say, Mako, I forgive you, and <laughs> Julie, forgive Mako as well. Wow, really? Like if some third party came into a fight that you were having with someone and said, I forgive that other person, <laughs> you'd probably go bonkers. Like, what? What allows you to do that? I'm the one that's wronged. Unless Jesus is also wronged on a deeper level because of his investment in you, in me, and in our relationship. And so the reason why he can call us into forgiveness and reconciliation with each other is because he is invested personally in us and in every relationship that we have. It's amazing. And then there's a couple chapters in Matthew 19 and 20 where he basically lays it out in terms of this is what sexuality and marriage, the vision for that is, this is the vision for wealth, this is the vision for power, and... I'll just read a little bit from this. You'll, you'll catch this phrase from the beginning. Monogamous, male, female, lifelong. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you, but from the beginning. And he's commenting on why is it that divorce was permitted during the Sinai covenant period of the history of God's people. And he's saying, well, it's because from the beginning, there was not hardness of heart, but once the fall happened, there was, so there were concessions made to that. But that's the picture for marriage. 
And then when it comes to sharing wealth, that's what the rich young ruler story is about. Jesus says, give everything you have to the poor. Live a life of constant, endless generosity where there is no upper limit on how much Jesus can call us to give. And his response to the disciples about, wow, that's a lot, is, well, in the regeneration, or in other words, in the regenesising of everything, you will sit on thrones. You will be the yardstick, right? Because you have given up everything. And then power and honor in the next chapter. So that's the big picture, restorative justice. There is a vision from creation that Jesus is restoring, and he's restoring us as human beings by undoing hardness of heart. Now, why is it that I would say distributive justice comes before meritocratic? But by the way, this is what I think the order is. First is restorative, second is distributive, third is meritocratic, and fourth is libertarian. Why now do I say, do I think scripture teaches distributive before meritocratic? It's because if you look at key institutions, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, this is what we see. And so in the Old Testament, it's about land. So Leviticus 25 is that great passage about the Jubilee principle. This is where the movement to uh, forgive debts of third world or developing nations comes from, that it, it takes its idea from this jubilee language. Basically, in the context of this, this was God's way of pressing an economic reset button in Israel every 50 years. And he says, I get to have family and land go back to its original boundaries so that I gift the garden land to every child and grandchild in Israel because you're all my children. Y'all are. And you don't get to pass down unlimited advantage or disadvantage to your own children or grandchildren. Mm -mm, not here. Now, there are other forms of wealth like livestock or coins or clothes, maybe other things, but land, no, you don't get to do that because land is both wealth and work opportunity. And I gift that as part of the garden land to all of you. I don't let you interfere with that picture. Deuteronomy 13 is what happens during the in-between years. Basically, how do you care for the poor? How do you forgive debts and all these things? Isaiah 58 is what happens when Israel didn't do that and God's saying, look, I, you expect me to answer your prayers when you don't care for the poor? And then you have Proverbs 10.4, which says, if you don't work your land, you don't eat. And that is a scripture that, if you don't mind me saying, a lot of white American evangelicals love to quote, if you don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> Why? Why do so many Protestants especially love that verse? Because it's all about meritocratic justice, right? and abstracted from its actual life in the people of Israel, it just sounds like it fits a conservative ideology. Now, it's important, but it can only be as valid when the requirements for distributive justice are met. What good does that do when your land has been taken away from you? When you don't have land to farm. 
You see why Leviticus 25 tempers Proverbs 10? See, this is where you cannot just flip through the Bible and say, oh, there's a principle, because you have to contextualize it and say, how do texts interact with each other? What is the biblical ordering of these principles? Similar things happen in the New Testament. The New Testament is not a land-based community. The image is primarily one of the table. It's as if we were all sitting at a table. Jesus is the host. We are all guests. He provides the resources, even though that is often done in partnership with us. And so if someone who is extremely poor comes to the table and says, could you pass the bread? What is our response? No. Did we provide the food? No. And that's what 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are about. Matthew and Luke demonstrate this teaching of Jesus that says, when you come to the table, invite the poor, the lame, the poor, the, the blind, the sick, invite them. And your reward will be at the resurrection because they can't pay you back. See, he's envisioning this table that we all, that he calls everyone to sit at. And then you have passages like 2 Thessalonians 3 where Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. Because what's the context of that? It was a bunch of people sitting around thinking, Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, and so let's not do anything. We don't have to work, and maybe someone will feed us. And okay, so if that's the case, for any of you all, if you're sitting around thinking Jesus is coming back tomorrow, and that if, that, if you think that excuses you from getting a job, sorry, it doesn't. So there is a place for meritocratic justice. But the larger issue, the larger category, is distributive, need-based distributive justice. Now, what about libertarian justice? Well, I think we would say, even in our secular examples, that there's something about individualism that it cannot be the highest principle. We, we recognize that. So why am I not able to sell my US passport on the open market? Well, because there's relationship built into this thing. Even when I didn't choose it, I was just born into it. Certain things you did not choose, but you have obligations anyway. Whew! That is something Western social contract theory does not really explain, does it? Because what happened in the Enlightenment is that Enlightenment philosophers tried to throw out the church from politics because the church held on to a restorative vision and they said, well, we don't want to mess with that. We just want to start with the individual. And from that point, then Enlightenment Political philosophy left all the other academic disciplines and it left reality. It left reality. Because what does sociology and anthropology tell us? That we're born into families. What does neuroscience tell us? That we're dependent on others until we're about 21 and finally that frontal lobe gets kind of firmed up. 
Every other academic discipline says we're born into relationship and we require relationship. Where do, do we get this Western individualism from except a desire to flee Christian theology? There are some legitimate concerns, though. One of them is that do we, are, see, as you're talking, as I'm talking, you're probably, there's something probably going on in your mind like, are you into theocracy, Mako? You want Christians just to be in power? So let me explain. <laughs> no, because, because embedded into Christian faith is the importance of freedom of religious conscience. So Jesus says that uh, many times, and, and Paul says it in Romans 9 through 11, when he says, we need to care about Judaism, the community of uh, Judaic Israel. And if the amazing thing is that if Christians had really understood what Paul meant there, instead of making Romans 9 through 11 into some kind of treatise on predestination and free will, which it is not about that. It is about God bringing about certain outcomes in history and answering the question, who is his partner now in inviting more and more people to him? That is what Romans 9 through 11 is about. And he, therefore, Paul has to talk about what is this community of Judaic Israel that is not Messianic Israel? Do we have to care about them? Paul says yes. And if Christians had understood what he meant, then they would have made more room for the Jews in European history. That would have led to way less anti-Semitism. That would have extended by principle into some level of tolerance for other religions Right, because Judaism is not Christianity, and so if we're gonna treat them with care and kindness, then we, it seems like we should treat other people with care and kindness and give them freedom of religious conscience as well, as long as they're not sacrificing their children. And so it would have saved Europe all of the wars of religion. And actually, from Constantine to about 150 years after his conversion, that's what Christians did. It was political pluralism. It was not a theocratic imposition of everyone must believe in Jesus. No. And Roger Williams is my hero in U.S. history because he recognized that. Even when he debated with John Winthrop and the Massachusetts Puritans. Providence, Rhode Island is the birthplace of religious liberty as far as the U.S. is concerned. So people have understood this. It's not like this is like this new thing. <clears throat> and then there is a principle in Genesis and the New Testament of distinguishing, distinguishing between other harm and self-harm. And so if you really want to think this through, you could ask me about it later. But essentially, things like um, drug use and drug possession, that is primarily self-harm. Drug dealing might be other harm. But... We need to distinguish between those kinds of things because what is the proper role of the state? It's to protect people against other harm. It really doesn't make sense to criminalize suicide, for instance. 
right? That does not make sense because the, the appropriate response to a suicide attempt is not to throw the person in jail, it's to put the person in the hospital. And you could be disapproving of an act without necessarily punishing it by trying to heal it. So there is that difference, and Christians actually understood pro uh, prostitution in that way. They said, actually, there's there are a lot of reasons why women might be prostitutes. And so we don't hold them personally responsible for it, because pimps could be blackmailing their families. They could be forced into it by poverty. But we do think it is a sin for the John, for the customer. And that's actually how they handled prostitution well into the Middle Ages. Pretty progressive, isn't it? They were able to tell the difference. And so it's not a theocracy that I'm advocating. For Christians, I think this is the order. Restorative justice, number one. Distributive justice, number two. Meritocratic retributive justice, number three. And libertarian justice, number four, with significant qualifications, because you can't start with both the individual and start with relationship at the same time. Something has to give, and you have to start with relationship. And then, the reason is theological. Why should your definition of justice prevail? Because there is a real foundation. It is founded on Jesus. On his teaching, in the story that he authenticates, but most particularly, in the humanity that he perfected. He showed us in his resurrection that there is a new humanity that God wants us to step into, to be part of, because there is something in us that resists God. And Jesus came to crush that thing, the corruption of sin, and perfect his humanity into the humanity that God always intended for us. And so when he shares himself by his spirit, he is restoring us individually to the people God always made us to be. And then it's, he calls us to walk into the relationships by the power of the Spirit that he always designed. Okay, so that is an introduction. <laughs> now, I know, are you still awake? You, now I'm going... <laughs> I'm going to apply some of these things to the issues of criminal justice. Why? Well, <clears throat> I do think this is an alarming issue that we're facing. The U.S. is the incarceration capital of the world, uh, especially for drug-related nonviolent offenses. It is off the charts. So Michelle Alexander, a constitutional lawyer at Ohio State, says this, the mass incarceration of African-American men in our country, primarily through the war on drugs, has created a new legalized system of racial discrimination and social exclusion. Uh, she calls it the new Jim Crow because <clears throat> the old Jim Crow was a way to disenfranchise black voters, take the vote away from them, and the new Jim Crow does exactly that. through, quote, legal means. Okay, this is a good quote by Michael Ignatieff, who's a theologian. Why does this matter to us? The abuse of justice in prisons continues to repose on the lazy, unreflecting belief on the part of the general public that prisoners deserve nothing better. The degradation of prisoners degrades all of us because it is in the name of all of us that they suffer their penalties. People may be too lazy to think through the consequences of strong emotions. 
In other words, sometimes we just want to get people out of our sight because we think they're disgusting or we think they're irredeemable or whatever, and we just don't want to think about them anymore. And the problem is that our federal prisons are 40% over capacity. And if you think of what that does to prisoners and correctional staff, it is totally dehumanizing. <clears throat> so, they need, so we need to answer this question. Why do we punish? Why do we incarcerate? And if you think about the possible answers, is it to take away freedom? Well, that would be what it is if you were a primarily libertarian, is to you know, take away freedom because freedom is natural and so you want to penalize someone by taking it away. Or is it to cause pain? Or is it to deter others? That's a utilitarian type of motivation. Or is it ultimately to help offenders repair the harm to human victims? Uh, I want to say, restorative justice does not completely do away with prisons. There's still a need for them, but it reconfigures the purpose. So, <clears throat> uh, why, why is this? Why do I have this slide here? Okay, so... <laughs> Uh, and that is because it's restorative justice takes its model primarily from God. What did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? You could think of that as, in some ways, a crime. However, eating from this tree of knowledge of good and evil is primarily an issue of self-harm, I would say. And so, what does God do? He says, I will deliver you out from that. Now, that might surprise some of you who are used to reading Genesis 3 as, but actually, isn't God retributive there? Doesn't he say, you cause me pain, so I'll cause you pain? Isn't that where pain in childbirth and pain in gardening comes from? I would say, no, that is not where it comes from. Because God was preserving our vocation as human beings to bring forth life. And he's saying, at some point there will be a seed of the woman, a human child who will stomp Satan and redeem human nature. And until then, you are still called to be life bearers because that's who I am. I'm a life bearer. You are also a life bearer because you're in my image. Now, because you've tried to kick me out of my own house, yes, I am a life source and bringing forth life is going to be a little more painful with, without me as close. But that doesn't mean that that's a punishment. That's just the consequence of what you've done. And I want to read you a couple quotes from the early church because I'm a fan of the early Christians. I think they had it way more right than we do today, especially Protestants. Here is Irenaeus of Lyon. He's the, from the second century and he is amazing. Okay, listen to what he says. Uh, Wherefore also God drove him out of Adam out of paradise and removed him far from the tree of life, not because he envied him the tree of life, as some venture to assert, but because he pitied him and did not desire that he should continue a sinner forever, nor that the sin which surrounded him should be immor immortal and evil, interminable and irremediable. <laughs> Big words. Here's another. Methodius of Olympus, the next century. In order then that man might not be an undying or ever-living evil, as would have been the case of sin were dominant within him, 
as it had sprung up in an immortal body and was provided with immortal sustenance, God for this cause pronounced him mortal and clothed him with mortality. The idea being if God let Adam and Eve and all humanity in corrupted form have access to the tree of life, whatever that was, it would have immortalized evil. Anything is better than immortalized evil. So death is preferable because God can redeem us out from death, which he would do in Jesus. Immortalized evil, uh, there's no hope for that. So do you see what's going on here? This is a restorative justice act. God is already intending to restore. He is not saying, you cause me pain, so I'll cause you pain. He's saying, because of, I love you, you are forcing me to close access to this so that the worst thing doesn't happen. Now that is going to be painful for you, but that's not my intention. And that, that's a huge difference. Gregory of Nazianzus, probably the most important uh, person in the first century to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, actually for, for the first millennium, says this, yet here too he makes a gain, namely death and the cutting off of sin in order that evil may not be immortal. Same thought, just running through all these guys. <clears throat> so furthermore, all, throughout the Sinai covenant, God shows his concern that Israel practice restorative justice. So y'all heard about Donald Trump saying, my favorite Bible verse is an eye for an eye. <laughs> now, there was a lot of interesting discussion that I noticed on Facebook about that, none of which was actually correct as far as I can tell. It was like, well, yeah, that's there, but then we just ignore that and go to Jesus, love your enemy, right? Like, well, uh, not exactly, because even there in the Old Testament, that's not actually what it meant that you, if, you, know, you just take retribution on someone. So here is Exodus 21, the first body of case law. If men have a quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but remains in bed, if he gets up and walks around outside on his staff, then he who struck him shall go unpunished. He shall only pay for his loss of time and shall take care of him until, until he's completely healed. What do you think of that? That's pretty cool, right? It's victim-centered. It's saying, no, there are consequences for anyone who injures another, but it's to contribute to the the victim's healing, and the offender is obligated as long as the healing is incomplete. Wow. See, that, that's different than just saying, well, an eye for an, you know, so if I hit you and knock out a tomb, <laughs> then you do the same. The, here's another example. Just a few verses down. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is demanded of him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is demanded of him. So there it is. It's, it might be that the outer limit of uh, restorative justice practice is okay, uh, the equivalent of murder is that the person is, is uh, murdered civically on punishment. But the clear intention is the victim gets to name a price, a compensation that says, this is what, this is what we as a family would need to move on. 
And in fact, the Jews, as far as we know, in the Talmud and other places say, it, it cannot be that an eye for an eye is literally an eye for an eye because that can't, that's not always going to be true. You know what their example was? What if a blind man actually knocks out the eye of someone else? Like what? That's not an equivalent consequence. So that can't actually be. So it must be just saying something about proportionality. The victim gets to name the compensation up to and including the limit of proportionality. And more and more in this, in this country and in other countries, we're exploring that. So uh, I wish I had time, but I'm just going to run. You can see these examples. Biblical Israel, the Christianized Roman Empire practiced some of this stuff. The Scandinavian countries have actually really explored this. Finland so much that their jails and prisons are not filling up as much. So they're converting their prisons into condo units because their restorative justice practices are so good that their recidivism is really low and people, because our system currently is designed to throw people back into jail. So, uh, and then U.S. Mennonite Christians have practiced this for a long time. Uh, Actually, New Zealand's juvenile justice department watched the whole thing go down when the shooter came onto the Amish community's property in Pennsylvania. You remember that? I think it was in what, 2005, he shot some students, shot himself, and the Amish community grieved, they prayed, and then they approached the widow of that guy and said, you must be torn up. You wanna, we don't hold anything against you, and, and we've forgiven your husband, like, but we, we wanna care for you. You wanna grieve with us? And New Zealand's juvenile justice officials said, we need to learn what they're doing. They went to an Eastern Mennonite seminary, and the East Coast somewhere, brought it back to New Zealand, implemented it, and saw their juvenile crime rates plummet. Because they are doing all this work with diverting, with circle groups, and all these things. And so they're, they're, they're practicing restorative justice, even in a, in a secular context. Uh, South Africa, Rwanda, and Uganda have used this method because there are times when you can't physically imprison as many people as you might like, but you still have to set up a process so that offenders and victims come together, the the victim gets some kind of closure by having the offender confess, and then do some kind of acts of service in order to restore the relationship. I wish I could tell you more about that. Now, what do we do now? How can we bring this tradition to our current situation where we have the war on drugs and mass incarceration, especially of black and brown folks? Well, part of it is we need to understand what got us here in the first place. Here was a confession about a month ago of John Ehrlichman, who was a former aide to President Richard Nixon. And he says, essentially, we knew... I'll read the quote. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or to be black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Wow, that is a very frank admission. And there are others who have essentially said, We were Republican strategists after the 60s when LBJ passed all the civil rights legislation, 
the white working class vote went from Democrat to Republican because they didn't like black people still. And so the Republicans seized on that and started the war on drugs and the get tough movement, which basically just criminalized relatively trivial nonviolent offenses primarily. <clears throat> and we are reaping the fruit of that today, are we not, in this election? Uh, <clears throat> at some point, I would request that you listen to this, this man on YouTube. His name is Matthew Fogg, and basically he talks about his experience in Washington, D.C., being a drug enforcement agent. And basically he was directed to poor parts, mostly black parts, of Washington, D.C. to make all these arrests because local law enforcement got money from federal agencies in order to uh, pr prosecute the war on drugs and throw people into prison and things like that. And he asked the question, why aren't we going to white fraternities? Uh, aren't there drugs there? <laughs> How come we're not going to like white mansions? We know they're, they're using drugs there. And his superior said, you better not even ask that question. Because if we go do that, we'll have lawyers, judges pouncing all over us, and there goes your overtime, there goes your bonuses, and then they'll decriminalize drugs just like we decriminalize alcohol. Ooh, pretty frank admissions. And that is actually more on the table now because of opium addiction and heroin addiction in the white community. We're, we're treating it as a restorative justice issue, finally. It's because when we otherize people, the more you, the more you don't identify with someone, the more, you criminalize, the more you criminalize their activity and the more retributive you get. But if it's your cousin who robs the liquor store, and you feel like, come on, give him a shot. Yeah, give him some consequences, but he's a good kid. Make it constructive. That's a restorative process, right? The closer you identify with the offender, the more restorative you are. The more you, uh, you disidentify, the more retributive you become. That is in one of my slides. <laughs> I'm going to zoom through here. Uh, <clears throat> And it may help you to know that this is how drug policy was always carried out. So this is from an article that says, the first anti-opium laws in the 1870s were directed at Chinese immigrants. Did y'all know that? So the first get tough on drugs was directed against Chinese folks. And then anti-cocaine laws in the South, early 1900s were directed at black men. The first anti-marijuana laws in the Midwest and the Southwest in the 1910s and 20s were directed at Mexican migrants and Mexican-Americans. Today, Latino, especially black communities, are still subject to wildly disproportionate drug enforcement and sentencing practices. That's <clears throat> just crazy. Drug use has always been stereotyped. It's an encoded message. People say, drugs, and then someone comes to mind, and we know, we know who that is. And this is the result. So compared between 1960 and 2010, it's been a tragedy for everyone, but especially for black men. You could see there, it more than tripled the number, number of black men in prison.
I want to look at this again <clears throat> and compare it to a law code that's kind of contemporary to the Jewish law, the Code of Hammurabi. The Code of Hammurabi says this, if a man has broken another man's limb, his own shall be broken. If a man has destroyed an eye or a limb of a poor man, he shall pay one mana of silver. Wow, you get that? So your, the punishment for your crime depends on how rich or poor your victim is. And that is where our criminal justice system is at now. It's more like the Code of Hammurabi, isn't it? Versus the Jewish law is proportional and restorative. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. If a man injures his neighbor, it shall be done to him. Although there is the right to name a compensation instead. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. In other words, non-citizens get the same kind of justice. We don't even have that today. They had human rights. We barely have citizens' rights. We don't have human rights. And so how did this principle and the 14th Amendment become eviscerated? Because the 14th Amendment, passed after the Civil War, designed to protect black folks, is this principle, equal treatment under the law. Well, I'm going to do a quick tour of uh, Supreme Court cases here. Yick Woe versus Hopkins in 1886. I actually looked this up, and you know, here in San Francisco, there's an elementary school named for this guy, Yick Woe. I'm really excited. Uh, to, I was really excited to learn about this because I, I was like, ah, Asian American activism. That actually, it went pretty far. So the situation was there's this guy, Yick Woe, who's convicted of operating a laundry business without having a license. Now, the situation was the law enforcement had arrested more than 100 Chinese people for operating these laundries without a license. How did that happen? It's because they applied for licenses, but the state never gave it to them. So they're like, well, we have to do our laundry anyway, so we're just going to operate these businesses. So the, this went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court overturned Yikwo's conviction, saying, though the law itself be fair on its face and impartial in appearance, Yet, if it is applied and administered by public authority with an evil eye and an unequal hand, so as to practically make unjust and illegal discriminations between persons in similar circumstances, the denial of equal justice is still within the prohibition of the Constitution. Dang! 1886! They actually got something right back then. Now, this is the time of Dred Scott, Plessy v. Ferguson, crazy Supreme Court decision. But here, there was precedent. There is still precedent. And yet, a lot of the 14th Amendment has been eviscerated. I'll just go through some Supreme Court cases here. City of LA versus Adolph Lyons. Lyons was a man, African-American man, very roughly treated, placed in a chokehold, and forced unconscious by white LAPD officers. The Supreme Court of the U.S. decides he does not have the standing to challenge LAPD practice. Thurgood Marshall dissented, saying chokeholds were potentially lethal. It's, the victims are disproportionately black. Officers' training are insufficient. And you could kill people. So uh, Robert Jarvis, the city's expert who's taught at the LAPD 
Academy for the last 12 years admitted that officers are never told that the bar arm control can cause death if applied for just two seconds. Of the nine deaths for which evidence was submitted to the district court, the average duration of the choke was approximately 40 seconds. Wow. So this is the Eric Garner situation, is not. So that was the first case in which racial bias as in practiced by the LAPD was protected by the Supreme Court. The next one was McCleskey versus Kemp. Essentially, uh, he was given the death penalty in Georgia for killing a white police officer in a scuffle. And the le his legal team said, look, we don't think you could apply the death penalty to him because it's so disproportionately given, right? There's so much racial bias in the administration of the death penalty. And the Supreme Court said, well, we acknowledge that's true, but it's still okay to give the death penalty to McCleskey because no one on the jury said it's because he's black that we're giving him the death penalty. In other words, you could have all the racial bias you want as long as you don't say that you're racially biased. This... <laughs> Yeah, well, the LA Times said this was one of the worst Supreme Court decisions after World War II. New York Times says, it effectively condoned the expression of racism in a profound aspect of our law. And another law professor said, it is the Dred Scott decision of our time. <clears throat> it's significant that we all have racial bias. You could go online and take the Harvard Implicit Racial Bias Test, and it's there. Uh, implicit bias research has uncovered deep and wide-seated tendencies among whites, including criminal justice practitioners, to associate blacks and Latinos with criminality. Why? Because when we otherize someone, we give them steeper punishments. We become more retributive, less restorative. This is an emotional and spiritual thing. Next one, Armstrong v. United States. Basically, he was this guy, Christopher Lee Armstrong, arrested for possession and conspiracy to distribute 50 grams of crack cocaine. His prosecutors noticed that, huh, okay, he's here in the federal system. <clears throat> uh, and, and public, actually, I'm sorry, his prosecutors decided to try him in the federal system and not the state system because the federal system is more, guess what, severe. The state system, more lenient and more discretion for judges and things like that. So as federal public defenders noticed something, they said, hey, you know, all these people here in the federal system have been disproportionately black and Hispanic. None were white. Given that actually at the time, most crack offenders were white, they were puzzled. Why don't we see white folk coming through here? And they suspected they were being diverted. Now, that this went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, you need to provide evidence that that's what the prosecutors are doing. And they said, we are requesting that the prosecutors give us all their data. And the Supreme Court said, uh, no, because you need to prove that that's what they're doing. See how that just went around in a circle? That's actually their decision. And so at every stage of the criminal justice process, policing, prosecution, sentencing, and as we'll see, jury selection, the 
criminal justice system has been inoculated for implicit racial bias. It's completely okay to be out and out, well, I shouldn't say out and out, but completely prejudiced as long as you don't say so. That's where we're at. Uh, the, I, I want to read you a, a case of prosecution and why prosecution has become such a problem here. On November 2nd, 2000, Irma Faye Stewart, then 30 and a single mother of two, and Regina Kelly, then 24 and a single mother of four, were arrested as part of a major drug sweep in Hearn, Texas. As reported by Frontline, the 27 individuals arrested in the sweep were indicted by a single informant later proven to be unreliable. All but one of the 27 are African-American. Both women proclaimed their innocence and were given public defenders who offered them little guidance and insisted that they plead guilty. Stewart's lawyer reported not remembering Stewart despite signing her plea agreement. Kelly and Stewart were both told that if they did not agree to a plea bargain, which amounted pr to probation, they would face five to 99 years. With a bail of 70,000 and two small children at home, Stewart took the deal and was sentenced to 10 years probation. But after a five month wait for the trial to begin, the state's case fell apart. Everyone that didn't take a plea, plea bargain, including Kelly, was found not guilty. Stewart, on the other hand, fell into destitution because of the plea bargain. Unable to secure food stamps or federal education money, unable to vote, evicted from public housing, and forced to pay a $1,000 fine and court fees on a minim minimum wage salary. All of those things are actually foisted on people after they leave prison. Did you know that? That was news to me. I knew things were bad, but I, until reading this book by Michelle Alexander, I did not know how bad. It's as if we believe that people are not done paying for their crime. And if, you, if you're, I mean, if folks are conservative, conservative-leaning, concerned about the family, this has got to raise major questions for you because if you say you're for the family, then why is there now this economic disincentive to reunite as a family? If I was the one in prison, and then I want to get back with my wife or girlfriend and care for her and my children, then they would lose out on public benefits like food stamps, housing. I still don't have the right to vote. When are we done? When are we done making people pay for their crimes? And in the U.S., <clears throat> Almost 95% of all felony convictions are secured without a jury. They are settled via a plea bargain, a unique facet of American law that allows the prosecutor to offer a reduced sentence in exchange for defendants waiving their rights to a jury trial and pleading guilty to the charges presented. So that's this unusual space where we used to say judges have the discretion to give uh, basically some space for like maybe community service as a punishment. But now we have used mandatory minimums, taken away judges' discretion, and therefore empowered prosecutors to negotiate and say, do you want to accept the charge of having crack or having marijuana in your possession? Because I can essentially determine how I'm going to prosecute this, right? And that becomes a threat, and sometimes 
uh, it's used to try to catch higher level you know, drug dealers and things like that. But essentially, this becomes a way of pressuring people to give up their Eighth Amendment rights, their right to trial by jury of their peers. It's like, just fess up, because it's going to go really badly for you. Uh, if we had more time, I would read you, read you this. Essentially, Jewish law has never authorized judicial torture, but ancient Greece, Rome, pre-modern and modern Europe, and England have all used torture in order to extract confessions from people. My point here is that plea bargaining appears to be a form of judicial torture. It's a, it's a way of presuming guilt rather than presuming innocence. And the reason why we've used this device is because the police have rounded up too many people for our criminal justice system to handle. So we need to speed it up. We cannot actually afford, under these circumstances, to do the Eighth Amendment, to do trial by jury of your peers. So we have just created a pipeline straight to prison. And again, this is the outcome. Jury selection, same thing. And so action steps. I do think that there are some very practical things uh, to do right off the bat. Families Against Mandatory Minimums and Drug Policy Action are two organizations that track legislation going through state and federal legislatures. And I don't know what's going on in California. I'm pretty in tune with what's happening in Massachusetts. But uh, I, I think based on a biblical vision of restorative justice, we really need to rethink, first of all, uh, is drug use self-harm or other harm? I think it's self-harm. And so I think we need to throw it into a completely different category. Okay, that might be different from what you think, but we could talk about that. On top of that, there are all these procedural things that we need to care about. So, three strikes laws. How is that fair, exactly? Right, someone gets a theft charge when they're 17, maybe a breaking and entering when they're 30, and then, this was actually real, it's in LA, there was a guy who uh, stole $122 worth of VHS videotapes for Christmas for his kids. And because that was his third felony, he got 50 years. How is that proportional? But that's what three strikes laws do. It's basically a way of saying, you're irredeemable. But do we believe people are irredeemable? I don't think so. Mandatory minimums. I think we, we need to do away with that. So, and I'll just uh, to, well, uh, suggest this. My, uh, my pastor in Boston wanted our church to read uh, Michelle Alexander's book, and there weren't enough copies at the Boston Public Library. So what I did is I read it, and I summarized every chapter in one or two pages. That was really hard because her book is really good. But I would ask you to consider using this curriculum because it, it provides uh, a, a short summary of every chapter 
and then pairs it with a biblical reflection and then concrete action steps. And I have led students and adults in it in 60 to 90 minute sessions. Uh, it does not do justice to the issues nor to the book. Uh, and I think Alexander's book is totally worth reading. But if you're busy and you know that's what you can spare, then it's better than nothing. So to close up here, we do need to think about justice restorative justice, because God has a vision for relationships, healthy relationships, and he also has processes that he has put into place or that he has exemplified at different points in biblical time about how to deal with people who break our hearts, who harm themselves, who harm us. None of that is easy, but I think we need to live by the power of Jesus who restores and wants to restore every single person to, the, to be who God made them to be. And so why don't I end it there and take some Q&A.